Well, this evening we're going to finish our series in Philippians, so please do open it with me. Philippians chapter 4 this evening. And Pete's going to close us out on this series. So Philippians chapter 4, and verses 10 through to 23 this evening. Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to read from verse 10 through to verse 23. This is God's word to us this evening. Paul is speaking and he says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that In the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphrodites the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Thanks, John. Do please keep your Bible open at Philippians chapter 4. It'll be really helpful for me and hopefully helpful for you if you can have it to look at as we go through this passage. We are drawing our series in Philippians to a close, and we want to take some time to think about what one Puritan writer has called the rare jewel of Christian contentment. That Puritan man was called Jeremiah Burroughs. He was one of the architects of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I have to confess that I only first came across his work about five or six years ago. I read a biography about him called A Life of Gospel Peace. And Burroughs is perhaps best known for his classic work entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I have borrowed his title for the title of this sermon this evening. And that book that Burroughs wrote is really just... uh, I suppose, an exposition of these verses in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 14. He is at pains to help his readers understand the secret of life, namely that deep and real joy and true and lasting contentment are to be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And yet, even the title of the book recognizes something of the challenge involved in experiencing such contentment, doesn't it? He talks about the rare jewel of Christian contentment. It is, by definition, a recognition that contentment is not something that comes easily. It is precious, 
like a jewel, and yet it is rare. It is something that is elusive for many in their Christian experience. It can be easy for a preacher to say that our joy and contentment should be found in Christ and Christ alone, and yet the reality is that it's another thing altogether for the Christian believer to know this to be true in their experience. And we live in a time when contentment really does seem to be the rarest of jewels. And our culture is rife with discontentment. If we're honest, that's just as much of a problem inside the church as it is outside of the church. The reality is that almost all of us experience discontentment in our hearts on a daily basis. There's a poem that I came across this week that I think captures something of the spirit of our age really powerfully. It's a poem called Present Tense. Remarkably, this was written by a 14-year-old, so teenagers challenge extended to write a piece of literature like this. It's written in 1989 by a 14-year-old called Jason Lehman. Let me read it to you. He says, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was autumn I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was autumn, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. And then he finishes, my life was over, but I never actually got what I wanted. It's quite profound, isn't it? It's impressive for a 14-year-old. I think it captures something of the discontentment that we see in our culture almost every single day, and perhaps even we ourselves feel in our own hearts every single day. So I want to take some time this evening to look at these verses and to think about the rare jewel of Christian contentment. What does Paul actually mean when he says that he learned the secret of being content in every situation? How can we say that with him? How can we too learn to be content no matter what circumstances we face? And then I hope too, as we we get towards the end, we'll see something in these verses of God's grace at work in the lives of the Philippian believers and God's grace at work even in his ongoing ministry, in Paul's ongoing ministry, even as he writes this letter from prison. So let's get into it together. The first point is by far going to be the longest. The second point is going to be really, really short. And the third point doesn't exist. It's only a two-point sermon. So we're going to look at the secret of contentment, first of all. We need to understand something of the setting into which Paul writes these words in order to appreciate their significance. So you'll remember that Paul is writing this letter while he is under arrest in Rome. He's about 800 miles from this church in Philippi. He has been visited by Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is a member of the church at Philippi. He has brought with him some gifts for Paul. And Paul is very appreciative of these gifts. Look at verse 10. He rejoices at their concern for him. Verse 14, he says it was good of them to share in his troubles. Verses 15 and 16, he expresses his thanks for their ongoing and consistent support over many years in ministry. He is thankful for them and for their generosity. And yet, he is tactful in his thanks. 
So this whole section from verse 10 to verse 20, the words here are a thank you, but they are a thank you with a sort of attached onto it. So Paul is really keen for these Christians to know that he's appreciative of what they've done for him, but he also wants them to know that he is not in gospel ministry for the money. Look at verse 11, he says he is not in need. Verse 17, he doesn't desire their gifts. Verse 18, he has more than enough and is amply supplied. He wants the Philippians to understand that he is thankful for their generosity, and yet he wants them to be clear he is not dependent on their gifts. And crucially, here's a really important point, his contentment is not grounded in his circumstances. He's not grounding his contentment in his bank balance or in his comfort or in his possessions. He has, verse 12, Learn the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And of course, even a, a cursory examination of Paul's life shows that he really did know what it was to be both well-fed and hungry, to be both living in plenty and also in want. So for example, when Paul first planted this church in Philippi 10 years before he's writing this letter, one of the first Christians that he met and stayed with was Lydia. She was an early convert, a founding member of the church, and as far as we can tell, she was a very well-off lady who extended the very finest hospitality to Paul and his companions. So we read in Acts chapter 16 that they stayed in her house. Most of the Bible scholars reckon that this was a pretty large and luxurious home, large enough for the Philippian church to meet in. And so it was one of those kind of houses that had guest bath towels and guest bath robes and personalized slippers. Well, maybe not, but it was nice. And so Paul knew, even from his time in Philippi, what it was to be well-fed and to live in plenty. And yet there were other times in his ministry, weren't there, where he knew what it was to be hungry and in want. So we're not going to look at it now, but later you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's an autobiographical description of the suffering that Paul experiences in his ministry. And among other things there, he talks about knowing hunger and thirst about going without sleep, about being cold and naked. So Paul knew how the other half lived in both respects. He knew what it was to live in plenty and in want, to put it in terms that we might appreciate a bit more. He had both stayed in the merchant and slept in a sleeping bag on the street corner. And his contentment was not dictated by or dependent on where he was, or how much he had, or how comfortable his life was. His contentment was grounded and rooted in his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, the secret of contentment was a result of bowing both heart and mind to the will of God, no matter what the conditions and circumstances that he faced. Jeremiah Burroughs, again, he defines Christian contentment in this way. Stick with me here. The, the language is a little bit old, but it's golden, I think. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It really is the most rare and precious of jewels. And what Paul is talking about here in Philippians and what Burroughs is describing is not just having a positive mindset, 
nor is it just being optimistic in the face of challenges, nor is it just having a bubbly personality no matter what. No, Christian contentment is knowing that because we have Jesus Christ, then we have absolutely everything that we need. Let me say that again. Christian contentment is knowing that because we have Jesus Christ, then we have absolutely everything that we need. I wonder how convinced you are of that this evening. If we want the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that is Christian contentment, then we must be convinced that if we have Jesus, then we really do have everything we need. Let me read a little bit more from Burroughs here. This is going to be on the screen as well. This is really helpful. He's expanding on what Christian contentment is. Christian contentment is when we see that it is not necessary for me to be rich, but it is necessary for me to have peace with God. It is not necessary that I have a pleasurable life in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that I should have a pardon for my sin. It is not necessary that I should have honor and preferment, but it is necessary that I should have Christ as my portion and that I should be saved on the last day. He goes on. I should be glad if God give me a fine house and income and clothes and advancement for my wife and children. These are comfortable things, but they are not the necessary things. I may have these things and yet perish forever. And yet no matter how poor I am, I may have what is absolutely necessary. That is what Christ and his gospel teaches me. Christian contentment is being convinced deep down in our hearts that Jesus really is better than anything else in the whole entire world. It's being able to say with the hymn writer, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Secondly then, Christian contentment is also about learning to receive and accept the gifts that God has given us in his sovereignty rather than always looking over our shoulders at the gifts that he has chosen to give to others. Many of us find that really difficult, don't we? I certainly find that difficult. Our sinfulness means that we have an inbuilt tendency to look over our shoulders at others and to envy them and what they have. We see a nice kitchen and we want a better one ourselves. We see a nice house and we want a better one ourselves. And even if we get a nice house, we want a caravan in Port Rush. And even if we have a caravan in Port Rush, we want an apartment in Port Stewart. And even if we have an apartment in Port Stewart, we want a house in Portugal where we can play golf in our shorts in October rather than our waterproofs in July. We're always looking over our shoulders or over the fence. And in the Bible, the opposite of contentment is covetousness. It's the desire to have something that others possess. And it's not just wealth and stuff that we find ourselves coveting, is it? It can be a whole myriad of things. If we're single, we might covet those who are married. If we're married, we might covet those who are single or covet another man or woman who is not our husband or wife. If we have no children, then we might covet those with children. If we are parents, then we might covet other people's children or covet those with the freedom of having no children. We might feel short-changed in terms of our intellect or our health 
or our sporting ability or our popularity or our friendship circles or our work situation or even just the experiences and opportunities that life affords us. In later life, we maybe envy the recognition that others have received. You might envy the youthfulness of others and resent that you feel somewhat forgotten about. Even in our spiritual lives, covetousness can exist. We can look on in frustration at the ways that God has gifted others and not us. Or maybe we look on in frustration in the ways that God seems to grow others so much more quickly and smoothly than He seems to grow us. The truth is that envy and covetousness plague us in the Christian life, and they steal our joy, and they rob us of the rare jewel of Christian contentment. So Paul wants us to understand that Christian contentment has its foundations independent from our circumstances. Our circumstances in life will change. In fact, more than that, your circumstances in life will almost certainly change in ways that you never thought or planned or wanted or expected. That is part and parcel of life in a fallen world. Of course, none of those changes will be a surprise to God. He is providentially at work in all of the things in our lives, even the things in your life that you wish weren't a part of your life. The Catechism teaches us that God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their actions. And so our experience of Christian contentment and our confidence in the providence of God absolutely go hand in hand. Let me say that again. Our experience of Christian contentment and our confidence in the providence of God absolutely go hand in hand. That's why one preacher has said that we learn contentment in the school of God's providence. The more we rest and trust in the providence of God for our lives and everything that He withholds from us are actually for our ultimate good and for His ultimate glory, the more we're convinced of that, the more we will learn to be content in every circumstance. By the way, look back at the verses. Do you notice the language of learning here? Both in verse 11 and again in verse 12, Paul talks about learning the secret of contentment. We won't happen upon the rare jewel of Christian contentment by chance. We won't drift into contentment. No, we must worship our way there. It's as we set our hearts on Christ, as we immerse ourselves in His Word, as we say our prayers, as we meet with God's people, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we use the ordinary means of grace, we worship and we learn the secret of contentment. And as we learn to be content with Jesus, then we too can say with Paul in chapter 4 and verse 13 that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Of course, he doesn't mean here that we can do everything that we put our minds to. It's often a very misquoted and misused verse, verse 13. Rather, he is saying here that in the strength of the Lord Jesus, we can be both calm in the face of adversity and humble in times of prosperity. We can face both triumph and disaster with a deep-seated confidence and calm assurance that our contentment is not grounded in our circumstances, but it is grounded in Jesus Christ. 
So what about you this evening as you think about your life? If, if contentment could be measured on a scale from one to ten, ten being that you're so content that you think you're almost in heaven, one being that you feel like you want to crawl up into the fetal position and never get back up again, where would you put yourself on the scale of contentment? The more we look at our circumstances, the more we will be sliding towards the bottom of the scale. The more we look at Christ, the more we remind ourselves of his works of providence, the more content we will be, the more we will find ourselves experiencing the rare jewel of Christian contentment. So that's point one, verses 11 to 14, the secret of contentment. I want to take just a a few minutes at the end of our time together to think of the second half of this passage and some of the glimpses of grace that we see in different people's lives. First of all, I want to see God's grace at work in the lives of the Philippian church. So they have been incredibly generous to Paul in terms of their giving to him. They have supported his ministry financially on a consistent basis, it seems, verse 16. And even verse 15, when no other churches have been supporting him. And we're meant to see that their generosity towards Paul is both a glimpse of God's grace at work in their lives, and crucially, it's also a demonstration of their own contentment in the Lord. So they are not clinging to their wealth. Rather, they have been given consistently and sacrificially over a long period of time. And their giving shows that in the same way that Paul was content whether he had plenty or whether he had nothing, so too are they. They aren't finding their contentment and clinging to their money. Rather, they are demonstrating their contentment in the Lord by giving their money away. They are an example to us of a people who know that ultimately their money is not their own, but God's. He has graciously given it to them. And so they are graciously given it to Paul in order to support him in gospel ministry. And so their generosity was proof that God really was at work in their lives. It was a concrete demonstration of what we read at the start of the book of Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 6, that God really was completing the work that he had begun in them when they first believed the gospel. Their contentment in the Lord and their generosity with their money is evidence of their salvation reminds us, doesn't it, that how we approach our money and our finances absolutely is a matter of the heart. If we really are content in the Lord, then one of the ways that that will work itself out in our lives and in our church is that we will be marked by the same kind of consistent and sacrificial generosity as the church in Philippi. God's grace ought to make us generous. Then one final glimpse of grace. It comes right down in the closing greeting at the end of the passage. These are verses that we often skim over at the end of Paul's letters, but they often contain little golden nuggets of truth. Notice in verse 21, first of all, that Paul says, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. That's what it says in the NIV. It's probably better translated, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. One of the themes throughout the letter to the Philippians has been Paul's desire to preserve unity in the church. And so here, even at the end of his letter, he wants every church member to know that they matter. He wants every church member to know that they matter. It's a brilliant piece of pastoral care. 
He wants them to know that grace means that everyone really does matter. Grace means that everyone is messed up and everyone comes with their own baggage. But grace means that there is hope for everyone, that forgiveness is offered to everyone, that everyone really does matter, and that more than that, anyone can get in on this. And actually, that is what Paul was experiencing and seeing even at this stage in his own ministry. Look at how he finishes off in verse 22. All God's people send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. It's only mention of Caesar in the New Testament outside of the Gospels and Acts. You see that Paul is seeing gospel fruit in his ministry even when he's under arrest. Even in Caesar's household, people have repented and believed. Now, we don't know if that means members of the royal family themselves. Perhaps more likely it's slaves and servants who are in, in the employment of Caesar. But whoever it is, they're in the household of Caesar and they are part of the people of God. And Paul wants to encourage the Philippians that their faithfulness, their contentment in the Lord, their generosity has been worthwhile. People even as far away as Rome, even in the inner sanctum of the royal household, have come to know and love the Lord Jesus. Talk about God's providence. What an incredible display of providence. Now, the empire that has sought to quell the spread of Christianity by imprisoning his primary evangelist, the Apostle Paul, has actually provided the means for the gospel to take root right at the very heart of the empire so that it will begin to grow and spread and develop even in Caesar's household, even in Rome, so that eventually it will overcome the very empire that has sought to crush it. God's works of providence really are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. He absolutely does know what he's doing. Always, always. And that means that he knows what he's doing in your life, even when you don't really understand it. And he knows what he's doing in our church, even when you don't really understand it. So can I encourage you this evening to keep believing that and to keep encouraging one another to believe that so that in our own lives as Christian believers and here in our church family that we might be able to enjoy and experience together the rare jewel of Christian contentment.